Please take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be studying this morning. Colossians chapter 2, we'll be starting uh, in verse 8. Last Sunday evening, we took some time to begin looking at chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and we went uh, mainly just focusing on verse 8 uh, in that, and I want us to take some more time this morning to continue moving through that passage uh, and considering, thinking about what does it mean to not be taken captive uh, and to understand that Christ is better than anything uh, that could be thrown at us. Uh, Before we do that, I want to take just a few minutes and just to review some of the things we went over last Sunday night uh, about uh, chapter 2, verse 8. And so if you are taking notes this morning, uh, go ahead and get your pen and paper ready and everything because we're going to cover what I was told was a 45-minute sermon uh, in about you know five minutes or so just to get some of the highlights before we dive into the rest of the text because I think that'll help us as we picture and think about what does it mean to not be taken captive of Christ as we understand that Christ is better than everything. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll read this and then we'll think some about it. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Now, before we dive into this, we need to understand basically what Scripture says about a war that we are involved in. Scripture tells us, New Testament tells us that we are involved in a war. And it's a war for our hearts, our minds. What is going to be the thing that captivates us in our life? Paul talks about in Timothy that we are soldiers of Christ. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're supposed to put on the full armor of God. And so we are considered soldiers with God as our captain. And it's not something that we normally think about, that we're involved in a war. But the New Testament makes it very clear. You and I are involved in a war. And we have an enemy who is Satan who walks around as a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, as 1 Peter 5.8 tells us. Now, in this passage, Paul uses that same understanding of a war as he speaks to us to guard against being taken captive. You see, that word that's used there for being taken captive is a word that was used to speak of invading armies when they would come in, overthrow a city, and then take out the spoils of war, and the people that they take as slaves. So basically, Paul is saying, don't be taken captive in this war that we are now facing, that you and I are walking through. And so we talked about some of the empty deceits and false philosophies that we face. Paul says here, don't be taken captive by any false philosophy or any empty deceit that is according to the tradition of men, that is according to the elemental principles of the world, in other words, according to Satan and the, the forces of darkness. As we discussed four of those, we talked about uh, the false philosophy of naturalism, uh, the view that the universe is all there is and there is nothing supernatural in the world and the natural world and its processes are really all that there is in this world. And as we talked about that, we said that that is a militant philosophy that is actively seeking to take us captive and it particularly is aimed at our kids, and so we need to be on guard against that. We talked about relativism, 
how uh, in our culture today, we are told that all truth is relative. And because all truth is relative, then morality is relative. And so what is right for me may not be right for you, and what is wrong for you may not be wrong for me. All morality is relative. And then we said that probably, if you're a member of Grace Baptist Church, you don't actually believe that. But one of the things that we said is that this empty deceit that is out there can creep in to the church by making us a little squeamish about standing for what is right and what is wrong, what is sin and what is not sin. And one way that we might see that creep into the church is when it comes to dealing with sin in the church, where we become a little squeamish about saying, that that person is in sin and we need to go talk to him about it. We, we might stand back and say, that's between them and God. It, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Who am I to say that what they're doing is wrong? And so we kind of step back from the commands of church discipline in Matthew uh, 18. Then we discuss the, uh, the empty deceit, false philosophy of doctrine doesn't matter. And, and what this says is, you know, doctrine and theology don't really matter. All that matters is that I love Jesus. And that sounds really good on the surface. But then we talked about, well, what Jesus are you talking about? Are we talking about the, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of the Mormons, uh, the, the diminished Jesus of the health and wealth gospel? Which one is it? And we said, no, we're commanded to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And so we should be people who are passionately doctrinal, who love theology. And the last one that we considered was the empty deceit of living for our own pleasure. Living for our, our own desire, whatever we can get the most pleasure of that this world can provide. And we said that none of us really would say that the goal of our life is to get the most pleasure that this world can provide. None of us would say that, but it's an empty deceit that I think all of us face. Because our world is constantly screaming at us, make your choices by whatever is going to make you the happiest. And so then we transfer that way of thinking into the church. And so we start thinking, well, which church am I going to? It's going to be the one that makes me the happiest. Or what's the criteria for a good sermon? It's the shortest and makes me the happiest. Which people tell me I'm not known for the shortest. The, uh, and so we begin transferring that into the church. And then maybe we're tempted to live not, we wouldn't say that we would do this, but we might make our choices, live our life just based on whatever is going to make us happiest. And the one thing that, that I said is I think this is killing the church in America because we have made so many decisions just based on whatever is going to bring us the pleasure of this world. And the statistic I quoted is that right now we have 16 million members of the Southern Baptist Convention. In that, we have 5,000 people who are overseas being missionaries right now. 5,000 out of 16 million. And right now, there are 12,000 people groups in the world, and we're currently reaching 950 through the International Mission Board. There are 6,000 unreached people groups in the world so if we have this few people who are taking the gospel to the nations 
then perhaps it might be that we as the church, at least in Southern Baptist Convention, maybe we have bought into the lie that we should live for the, the comforts and ease of this world rather than giving ourselves wholly for the gospel and for the sake of Christ. Perhaps that's the case. And against all these empty deceits, all these false philosophies that are thrown at us, we said Christ is better. Christ is better than the empty deceit that you should live for the pleasure of this world because Christ is better than any pleasure that this world has to offer. Christ is better than the empty deceit that morality is relative because we have the truth in Christ. Christ is better than the empty deceit that doctrine doesn't matter because we have the fullness of God in Christ. See, Christ is better than any false philosophy, any empty seat that can be thrown at us. Christ is better than any pleasure that you can get from this world. Christ is better than all of that. But what we didn't have time to get to last Sunday night is why. Why is Christ better than anything else that we can ever find? And Paul tells us exactly why right here in Colossians chapter 2. So again, look back with me at Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. He tells us, do not be taken captive. And then this is why in verse, uh, in verse 9. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Do you want to know why is Christ better than any empty deceit, any false philosophy, any pleasure that this world has to offer? It's because of this right here. Because in him, the fullness of deity dwells. Christ is better because Christ is God. Evidently, the false teaching that was going on at, at Colossae was something to do with with Christ, a false understanding, a diminished understanding of who Jesus is. And so Paul wants to help them understand Christ is God. He says the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily, in bodily form. Well, this is obviously a reference to the incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh. And so what Paul is saying is if you have seen Christ, then you have seen God. If you have seen Jesus, then you know what God is like. Because in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. The full attributes, the fullness of God is found in the Son. And so I want you to stop and think for just a minute. Think about the fullness of who God is. I want you to think in your mind about that complete holiness of God. That God is absolute perfection. That God is absolutely other. He is separate from anything evil. He is separate from all the, the lesser things that there are. He is other. Think about all the power that resides in God. The power to speak and call the universe into existence. Think about the infinite love that is found in God. Think about the mercy. The mercy that called a sinner like me 
out of the, my death and sin and into life. Think about the goodness that's found in God. Think about his wisdom. Think about the full glory, the majesty of God supreme. The fullness of who God is is found in Christ. So when we think of Christ, when we see Christ, we see the fullness of that love. We see the fullness of that holiness. We see the fullness of his wisdom. We see the fullness of his power. It is found there in Christ. And so against every empty deceit, against every false philosophy, you have the Christ who is the fullness of God. You have Christ who is God. Now here's what happens. I want you to think about this. Here's what happens when we see Christ in that way. When you see Christ as the fullness of God and you fix your gaze upon him, everything else pales in comparison. When you fix your eyes on Christ, the fullness of deity, and then when you see the pleasures of this world and the temptation to live for the pleasure of this world, those pleasures fade away in comparison because you see Christ is better. When you face temptation in your life, but then you gaze into the fullness of God in Christ, those temptations begin to fade away because Christ is better than any temptation, any pleasure that can come from a temptation. When we encounter the lesser Jesus of the cults and the, the diminished Jesus of the health and wealth gospel, uh, those false Jesuses just pale in comparison to the reality of the fullness of Christ who we see in Scripture. And when we face the cares of the world, whatever struggles, whatever difficulties that you might face in your life, when you stare into the face of Christ, who is the fullness of God, those difficulties, those troubles, they, can, they pale in light of the fullness of the glory of God revealed in Christ. See, when we see Christ for who he really is, the fullness of God, we see that he is better than any empty deceit, any false philosophy, any pleasure that this world has to offer. Because when we have Christ, we have God. Now you hear some people say, now if you will come to Christ, you will have a better life. If you will come to Christ, your problems uh, will fade away. If you come to Christ, you'll have a family in the church who loves you. No, the reality is when you come to Christ, what you get is you get God. And there is nothing that is better than that. You come to Christ, you get the living God. That is good. That is better than anything that we can have in this life. Christ is better because he is the fullness of God. Paul wants us to continue remembering. Don't be taken captive by any empty deceit, any false philosophy, because he is the fullness of God. But he also tells us, second, Christ is better because you have been filled in him. Listen again to what it says in verse, uh, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. You've been made complete. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you may notice that there's a little... 
uh, a little subtext that's under that, or mine has a little one there that points me down to the bottom of the page to give a different translation of that. And this different translation says that instead of complete, it could mean uh, filled or fulfilled. So in him you've been made complete, or in him you have been filled. Now, which is it? Is it in Christ we have been made complete, or is it in Christ we have been filled? I don't, I don't think it has to necessarily be an either-or. I think both those things are true. In Christ, we have been made complete. If you are a believer, if you've been made alive in Christ, then you have been given everything that you need to be pleasing in God's eyes. If you are a believer in Christ, your sins have been wiped out through Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, then you have been granted the full righteousness of Christ. And so that when God sees you, he sees the full righteousness of Christ. And so you have already everything been made complete by Christ to have everything that you need to be pleasing to God. But I think also Christ fills us. That in God we have been filled. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. If you are in Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Now here's the theology question. Is the Holy Spirit only partially God or is the Holy Spirit really all God? Is the Holy Spirit just a diminished God? Or when we have the Holy Spirit, do we have God? The answer is we have God. The God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So now you know the answer to that. The Holy Spirit is God. And so if we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have God living within us. Now, if you're like me, this is something that you've heard since you were, uh, since you were young. You heard it in Sunday school. Uh, you heard it after you became a believer where the, the pastor said, now you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And so you've heard this probably for most of your life uh, if you're like me. And so sometimes when we hear something a lot of times and we've heard it a long time, sometimes it loses its significance for what exactly it means. And so I don't want us to miss the significance of what it means to have the Holy Spirit residing in us. I think one way to help us remember that is to, to flip back to Acts. So go ahead, take your Bibles, flip back to Acts. We're going to do a little activity that I think may help us think through what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit residing in us. All right, we can say that basically the theme of Acts is the Holy Spirit's work in uh, growing the church and expanding the church. That, that's it. That's what Acts is about. It's the Holy Spirit's work uh, in forming and expanding the church. And you know this from what it says in Acts 1.8. Listen to this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is Christ speaking, and he's speaking a promise about what is going to happen. He's saying that you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then after that point, the gospel is going to go forth throughout the whole world. And that's basically what we, have, what we see in all the rest of Acts. And so I want us to flip through, walk through Acts real quickly, 
and just to take notice of everything that the Holy Spirit does. Over and over again, we will see and hear Acts saying, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then God worked in this way. They were filled with the Spirit, and then this happened. So I want you to see quickly how God worked by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the early church. So in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 1, going into chapter 2, we have Pentecost. And you remember what Pentecost was. The Holy Spirit fell in power there uh, at Pentecost. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And people were confused about what was happening. And then after that, Peter got up, boldly stood up, and began proclaiming the gospel to all those who were around. And what did God do through that proclamation of the gospel right then? 3,000 people were saved. And at the end of chapter 2, we see these 3,000 people who are saved. They're constantly spending time together. They're worshiping together. They're studying the word together. God has even done such an amazing, powerful work in their lives that if there's anybody who has need in the community of faith in that church, they sell their possessions to meet the needs of the people in that church. And so the God is powerfully at work. All right, so not too long after that, Peter and John in chapter 3, they go uh, to the temple. And as they are going, they see a, a, a man who is begging there in front of it. He's, he's begging for alms. Please give me something. And Peter walks up to him and looks at him and says, Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. Get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And so we see the Holy Spirit working in this powerful way. And then we see right after that, in chapter 4, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins proclaiming, preaching, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he has risen. And then he is even brought before the authorities, but he continues to preach and proclaim, the Son of God is Christ, and he has risen. And even when they are thrown into prison, they continue proclaiming. And God, through the Holy Spirit, releases them, sets them free out of prison in chapter 5. Chapter 6, the, the church has grown so much that the apostles can't even oversee all the ministry anymore, so they have to begin uh, appointing deacons to oversee some of the physical ministry that goes on in the church. One of these men is Stephen. And Stephen, man, full of the Holy Spirit, as Acts says, he goes out and he proclaims the gospel. And as he delivers this long proclamation of the gospel, what happens at the end? He is stoned. He is killed. And then from that point, the gospel begins going out and going forth uh, throughout the rest of the world. You remember uh, in, uh, I believe it's Acts chapter 8, Philip is going down the road. And it says, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and, go, and told him to go talk to this man who's on the side of the road. And it ends up being this Ethiopian eunuch. And what's he doing? He's reading the word of God about a prophecy about Christ. And what happens is he teaches and preaches to him and says, this is the Christ. It's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who is now alive. And that man was baptized there and went on his way. And then what do we see after, happening after that? Acts chapter 9, we see a murderer who is brought to faith in Christ by seeing the risen Lord. And then Acts chapter 10, 11, we see the gospel going forth. Peter is led by the Holy Spirit to a man by the name of Cornelius. And as he goes to this man, the gospel is proclaimed to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his whole household believe they trust in Christ for salvation, and the gospel is gone to the Gentiles now. And we see in Acts chapter 13, 
The Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas so that they can be sent to proclaim the gospel uh, to all the ends of the world. And all through the rest of Acts, we see the gospel going forth to all the Roman Empire. Churches are started. Elders are appointed in those churches. Miracles occur, and the gospel expands, and there are churches all throughout their world, the Roman Empire. That is the work of the Holy Spirit working among that early church to bring about this amazing thing, to bring all these pagans in the Roman Empire to life in Christ. Now, here's the thing that I want you to hear. This is what I'm coming back to, the significance of the Holy Spirit in your life. The same God who did that in Acts is the same God who dwells in you. If you have Christ, then you have the fullness of God and the Holy Spirit residing in you you the same God who worked so powerfully through the book of Acts is the same God who lives in me and if you are a believer lives in you as well do we believe this do you believe that this same God dwells in you You see, my fear is that too often we believe this in our minds, but functionally by the way we live, it looks like we don't believe this. Sometimes there are times I look at my life and I I may not expect God to really do anything. When was the last time we went to work with the prayer, God, do something through me at work that can only be explained by you. When was the last time, student, you went to school and you thought and you prayed, God, use me in a way that can only be explained by you? Moms, when you were staying at home with your kids, When was the last time you prayed, God, use me in such a way that can only be explained by you and laying a foundation of truth for my kids? Do we believe that we have the same God living in us who can use us for his glory? The same God who worked in Acts is the same God who is in you and me if you know him. same God so this Christ is better he is better because he is God he is better because he fills us and we have God when we have Christ and he is better because he is head over all flip back to Colossians chapter 2 we've been commanded Do not be taken captive by any philosophy and empty deception. In verse 9, For in him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And here finally, Christ is better because he is head over all rule and authority. Remember, there was some false understanding in this church about who Christ really was. And so Paul wants them to fully understand that Christ is better because he is head over all else. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This is a passage that, Paul pre- uh, that Todd preached on a, uh, a few weeks ago. 
Listen to what it says and hear about how Christ is better and how he is head over all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things in him, all things hold together. He is the creator, and because of that, he is head over all things. Whether human authorities or whether it's Satan and the forces of darkness, he is head over those things. So let us live with a thought on our hearts and on our minds. He is head over all. When troubles come your way, he is head over everything. When we have difficult choices to make, he is head over everything and has all authority. When we're faced with a decision, are we going to enter into a difficult ministry that may be dangerous or may require much of us? He is head over everything. What is going to be the purpose, the goal of our life? What will we give our life to? He is head over everything. Christ is better. He is God. He has filled us. He is head. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with these truths about Christ? That he is better than everything else. Here's what I think it means. If Christ is better than everything else, here's what we say with our lives. It's a blank check. God, whatever you want from me, I will do. Because you are better than anything else. My life is before you. It's yours so whatever you call me to, whatever you want from me, my life is a blank check before you. It's yours. You want me to sell everything and move to Peru? That's fine. It's a blank check. Christ is better than the comforts I have here. You want me to sell all my stuff and give it to the poor? That's fine. Christ is better than the stuff I have. You're calling me to move for the sake of the gospel? That is fine. Christ is better than where I live. You want me to give up any chance at popularity at my school so that I can proclaim the gospel and be made fun of even? That's fine. Christ is better than any popularity that I might ever have. God, you want me to go talk to my neighbors, but it's so intimidating to go and do that. That's fine. I'll go do it because Christ is better. You want me to start an evangelistic study at my work? That's fine because Christ is is better than the fear I might have. Is it, is it possible that there are times that we don't attempt much for Christ because we fear what will happen or we don't expect God to work powerfully through our lives? Is it possible that we're satisfied with too little in our lives because we're satisfied with too much in this world? Is it possible that we're satisfied with seeing God use us very little when we should be passionately desiring God to use us in ways that can only be explained by him? I want to 
I want to read a, a passage from a book. And it's a, a pastor is, he's encouraging the people who read this to have their lives be focused on one thing, for their lives to be set on Christ. If Christ is better than everything else, then our lives must be set and focused upon him above everything else. And what he does is he gives two different examples. And this is a little longer, but I think it'll be helpful for us to hear. Listen to what he says. Uh, It's regarding now your life making a difference now that you know Christ. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to have a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things or one great, all-embracing thing and be set on fire by them. You may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you would just have a good job with a good wife or husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have all that even without God, you'd be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making. A wasted life. And so then he gives two examples. One is an 80-year-old woman and a friend of hers who is also about 80. And they die in a car wreck while they're on missions in Africa. And he asked the question, is this a wasted life? He said, no. Far after most, longer after most people have spent their time in ease, They have given themselves for the sake of the gospel, even to the point of dying on the mission field. And then it gives an example of another couple. They retire early, move to Florida, and spend the remainder of their years playing softball and collecting seashells. And he says, what a waste. When they go stand before their maker they'll say the last years of their life were spent collecting seashells and they'll say look Lord see my seashells and he says it's a wasted life because it's a life lived simply for their own pleasure but Christ is better than that Christ is better than any pleasure this world has to offer. So we lay our lives down and say a blank check, whatever you want from me. If it's to move to the remotest, most dangerous place, that's fine. If it's to stay here, that's fine. If it's to teach kids in school and do it to God's glory, that's fine. If it's to raise your kids 
in a God-exalting way that points them to Christ, that's fine. But let us lay our lives down and say, it's a blank check. You are worth it. So whatever you desire from me, my life is yours. It's not mine. Let's pray. Our God, we do come before you and we say, you are better than anything this world has to offer. And so Lord, we say our lives are a blank check before you, whatever you want from us. May we say with Paul, we are crucified with Christ. And so my life isn't my own. It's yours. Do with me whatever you will. Guard us, Lord, from attempting little for you. Let us attempt great things for your glory, knowing that we have the Spirit living within us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.